much. Thank you. Thank you. Am I on? I think, is this good? Excellent. Thank you. Um, yeah, just repeat, thank you so much for coming out tonight. And when I saw the rains coming down earlier early today, I feared the worst. But what a fantastic crowd. It's a real honour to speak to you today. Um, yes, I imagine... So what to kind of say, by the way, um, I'm hobbling a little bit today because I put my back out last week, so so much for the joy of steps. Steps aren't very <laughs> joyful for me at the moment. <laughs> if I keel over in agony, you'll know why. Um, yes, I think this, this image or at least some version of it, is going to be very familiar uh, to most of you. This is um, the March of Progress. Um, Not a great name for it, unfortunately, but it's, yeah, so demonstrating the literal rise of humanity from a kind of shambling, knuckle-walking, four-legged, chimp-like creature uh, to our current uh, upright manifestation. Um, And I'm always at pains to emphasise how appropriate this is as an image for the process of evolution. Uh, because the way we move is one of the most important things um, that, um, that, that um, evolution has ever done. Um, for very good reasons. So um, if you would just bear with me a second. So imagine if we have, say, a population of creatures, and some of them can just move faster than others, like so. Um, it won't take you long to realise that the one that moves faster will have a number of significant advantages. So if there's some food in the vicinity, clearly the faster one is going to get there first. If there are predators around, clearly the faster one is going to get away. This is the old, um, you, know, you just need to move faster than you make and you'll be fine. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty obvious that though, if you're able to move better, you are going to um, uh, enjoy a number of important advantages, a number of benefits. Uh, you are the one that's likely to survive. You're probably going to be the one that's going to be able to, to feed your children and reproduce more. Uh, and assuming that those characteristics that make you a better mover are heritable, if they are passed on from generation to generation, then those genes for good movement are going to survive into the next generation. And so the stage is set for an incremental generation-by-generation improvement in the way things move. And I want to say it's not just a simple question of do you escape the predator or do you get the food? Possibly more important, well, as important as anything else, is how economically you do it, how efficiently you do it. It's no good being the one that gets to the food first if you just burn up all your energy to do so. Uh, the, the more energy you can save in doing this, then the more that's going to be left for the very important business of baby making. Of course, as far as Darwinian natural selection is concerned, uh, the quality and number of your offspring is really the only thing that matters. And so normally in these sorts of talks, I will then go on at length as to how we have been physically shaped uh, by the need to move and how we are wonderfully honed, perfected by natural selection to be uh, as efficient movers as possible. Today I'm going to do something a little bit different because, of course, it's not just what you've got, it's what you do with it uh, that's important. And when you've got genes that are building a creature that can move around, it presents a quite an interesting challenge for those genes. Because it now has to be able to build that creature to move in such a way that will do, it, do those genes most benefit. So that will lead to more and more copies of those genes ending up in the next generation. To put it in a kind of metaphorical way, uh, the genes need to build a creature that will do good by them. Um, It needs to kind of serve the purpose of the genes. 
that's an interesting thing to do. So it has to kind of build this creature to be able to navigate in the right way, to be able to move as efficiently as possible. And there are some very simple ways of doing that. So if you look at these um, E. coli bacteria, really simple but very sophisticated little trick these things do. Uh, you might notice that a few of them are kind of tumbling around. So all they're doing is they're swimming in a straight line uh, as long as whatever they're seeking, could be sugar or whatever, um, as long as that's kind of getting more and more concentrated. As soon as that's no longer the case, they flip the direction of their tails, tumble in another direction, and then just set off and try again. And that is all there is to it. It's a very simple little trick based on flipping those tails from either rotating clockwise or rotating anti-clockwise. And thanks to this, they're really surprisingly good at navigating to where uh, the food is. That works absolutely fine if you're a bacteria. For something that gets much, much more complex, of course, this whole idea of being able to kind of build an organism to move most effectively becomes a much more complicated, much more difficult task. And of course, for complex animals such as ourselves, that largely rests in the architecture of our nervous system. Uh, the nervous system that is gathering information from the environment all the time, prioritizing things, seeing what's important, what's not, and then feeding information into our engines, into our legs, uh, to get us to move as effectively as possible. Um, it gets even more complicated, of course, because as we all know, or maybe we may know, uh, the nervous system isn't even fully specified by the genes. At least the architecture of the nervous system isn't fully specified by the genes. It can remodel itself through learning. So the genes then have to kind of provide the rules by which that learning can occur. I hope you can begin to see this is going to be quite a, a complex task. And then to cut a long story short, at some point before we turned up, consciousness arose. We are now conscious entities that have desires, we have needs, we want to do things. That presents, again, a very interesting challenge for the genes. They now have to kind of get us moving in the way that's going to be most beneficial for them. How are they going to do that when we actually kind of have these desires and needs? Well, in a sense, I've kind of already answered my own question. Because in most, this is the whole point of, uh, of emotions. There is an evolutionary biology of emotions. This is how the genes persuade us to do the right thing by them. Now, whenever we do something which may harm our overall reproductive success, we are punished by pain and fear. Whereas if we're doing something that's going to do good by our genes, well, then that's going to be rewarded by joy and satisfaction and pleasure, that sort of thing. Um, and going back to this idea of locomotion, being able to move as effectively as possible, if that is such an important thing to do, then you'd expect that the very act of movement should be enjoyable. It should be something that is rewarded by our genes if it is such a good kind of idea for us to do. And I think there is obviously abundant evidence that this is the case. Um, I'm going to concentrate mostly on humans, but before that, I just want to have a look at some nice animal examples. Um, mainly just to make the point that um, there's a kind of curious undercurrent in some scientific circles um, that has no problem um, attributing emotions like pain and fear uh, to non-humans but sometimes have trouble kind of thinking that they might be able to feel joy or satisfaction or pleasure. Um, I just wanted to show this. It's obviously very difficult. You know, it's impossible to actually kind of get inside another animal's head and actually know what they're feeling. But when you look at something like this, 
Quite a famous little video, this. Uh, so that's a crow in Russia, seemingly just mucking around. Uh, I'll probably do it again in a second. It's just, you know, found this object and is using it to surf down uh, these snowy slopes. There's not any really obvious sort of reason why it should be doing this, unless it's just enjoying it. It's just enjoying the sensation. Playing games with gravity. Um, and I think this has great relevance for... Um, Um, this has great relevance for how we are evolved uh, to move as effectively as possible because you know, what it, you know, it looks like all it's doing is just having a good time and kind of mucking about. But at the same time, it's probably improving its skills. You know, it's, it's kind of getting used to its body, exploring new dimensions of how to move. And I think that's a, a kind of very important thing to bear in mind. Here's another example. Oh, actually, inspirational music. Um, so I grew up by the sea, so I kind of get to see this thing I got to see this thing all the time when I was growing up. Uh, a bunch of seagulls just wheeling around the cliffs. Don't seem to be foraging. They don't seem to be kind of going after food. All they're kind of doing is simply kind of playing games with the air currents. Um, and yes, on the one hand, you could say what they are doing is refining their aerial skills. They are getting better at flight because, of course, ultimately that's going to serve them very well. And I have no problem with that. I'm sure that's absolutely true. But in terms of what might be actually going on in these things' heads... Again, I think they're just flying around for the sheer hell of it. And certainly, if I was able to do this, um, I would. So, this is this idea of the joy that one might take in locomotion. So, the, the, if, if you are programmed to enjoy the act of moving, then you're going to get better and better at it. And that is something that we would expect to happen. Um, it certainly does seem to be the case for humans. So, this is probably largely how we learn to move in the first place. Um, I'm sure, of course, you're all very, very familiar with this. The basic idea that we start off crawling. Actually, all sorts of different ways. We don't, we don't just kind of go through this crawling phase and eventually end up kind of standing on two feet and walking around. Now, that is actually quite an unusual thing, the more you think about it. Why would we shift from a movement mode where we're nice and stable on four legs... Uh, and presumably we, we kind of master it. We're pretty good at crawling. And then we go from that to this, where we're kind of stumbling around, uh, falling over all the time, and seemingly taking a, a, a big giant step backwards in terms of how effectively we move. Um, I was very lucky, actually, when I was writing uh, my first book to, have a, uh, to visit uh, one of the labs that's trying to kind of dissect this sort of problem, to try and answer why this might be. Uh, this is the Infant Motion Lab, uh, at New York uh, University. So this is the lab in question where they do all sorts of interesting things to babies, put cameras on them. Um, a lot of what they do is simply look at what these toddlers are doing uh, in their environment when they're not kind of coerced to do anything. They're simply you know, moving as they would like to do. And as a result of this, you can get that sort of readout. You can literally just kind of keep track of what these, of what these babies and toddlers are doing over the course of the day. Um, and they found some quite interesting things when we're thinking about this move, this, this transition from crawling uh, to walking. Oh, sorry. Very dry-looking graphs. Don't worry. There won't be very many of these as a talk. Um, so just over here first, this is the number of falls per hour. And as you can see, unsurprisingly, uh, the walkers fall a lot more frequently 
because of the corners. Do still fall. It's, it's not uh, impossible to fall when you're on four legs. Um, and then the middle one, there we see the time in motion. That's interesting. So the walkers basically are spending more time walking than the crawlers are spending time crawling. Now that is interesting. Now, if they're spending more time doing it, remember they're not coerced, coerced into doing this at all. If they're spending more time doing this movement, it's because they want to do that. It's because they're enjoying it. Uh, and then finally, in terms of the distance travelled, this is probably one of the more significant ones, that the walkers are covering vastly more distances, uh, vastly greater distances uh, than the crawlers. What this means, if you kind of put all this stuff together and look at how far you go before you fall, weirdly, paradoxically, it actually looks that it's, uh, although it looks like the walker is slightly better than the crawler, that's not a significant difference. Uh, but basically, there's no real difference. Um, that it is not actually worse to stand up on two feet and start walking around. So it seems that what happens in our own locomotive development is that we will turn to walking as soon as we can, as soon as we have the strength to be able to do it, just because it is a more effective way of getting from place to place. Uh, we can go further, we can uh, go faster. And all of this is, seems to be more enjoyable for us. Um, and of course, once we do that, then the stage is set for us to refine uh, our walking skills. So to begin with, it's all a very laborious, <laughs> just be careful what I do, uh, it's all a very kind of laborious, uh, try to kind of contracting all the muscles at once, uh, but just to kind of improve our stability, it's a very kind of labour-intensive way of moving around. Uh, as we get better at it, we begin to trust our own bodies more. We begin to trust gravity more, um, such that by the time we reach our adulthood, um, we're barely expending any energy at all in the act of motion. So as I'm walking here, my legs are basically just swinging backwards and forwards with the pendulum because this is not as easy as it normally would be. Um, we are built, as I say, to be as efficient movers as possible. And we all kind of learn to do that as babies. And this is really why, um, and this is another kind of paradox uh, that the Infant Motion Lab is exploring, why we all end up basically converging on the same solution. Uh, because as I say, as babies, we try out all sorts of different modes. Yes, we can crawl on all fours. We can bear crawl with straight legs. Uh, we can bum shuffle. We can inchworm. We can commando roll. Uh, all sorts of different things we try out. Um, and yet we all end up basically moving in the same way, just because that is the most efficient way that a body like this can move. Um, and we reach this point because it is most enjoyable to do so. We are kind of programmed uh, to try to find the most efficient way of moving that we can. Now, that's going to prove uh, quite significant uh, later on. So anyway, that's, uh, in a nutshell, a little bit of stuff about how we learn to move and the importance of uh, the enjoyment that we might take in locomotion when we're learning to uh, move in the first place. But the question is, do we still have this joy of movement when we're adults? Uh, is this something we can still experience, or is it something that we, you only experience uh, when you're an infant? Well, as any uh, endurance runners among you will know, and I'm looking at you, <laughs> um, yes, of course we can. Um, whenever I mention this, um, often what springs to mind is the notion of the, the runner's high. Now, just out of interest, have any of you experienced the runner's high? Uh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I haven't. <laughs> um, um, apparently, it's a very delightful sensation, the kind of feeling of euphoria 
uh, and well-being that you get um, when you go for a generally pretty, pretty protracted endurance run. Um, you will probably um, understand it as, as caused by the release of endorphins, um, so the brain's natural painkillers. It turns out actually the endorphins are not responsible really for the sensations of the runner's high. Uh, it's actually a group of chemicals, uh, chemicals called endocannabinoids. So it's, it's an internal class B drug, not an internal class A drug. Um, and these have painkilling effects. Um, they uh, also elicit the uh, release of a neurotransmitter called dopamine, which I'm hoping some of you will have heard of. It's often kind of held up as the brain's reward chemical. It's something that kind of gives us uh, a feeling of well-being, a feeling of joy uh, when we go for a kind of endurance run. Um, and now we hit another paradox, because the question is, if it's such a great thing, if it feels so nice, uh, to go for these runs and to kind of exercise all the time, then why are most of us not doing enough exercise? It is, uh, this is called the exercise paradox. Now, because you'd think if it was such a nice thing to do, then why aren't more of us doing so? And to understand this, we have to understand something about the evolution of the runner's high. Because actually it does seem to be a very specific reason why this has evolved uh, in humans. And it, um, to understand this, we need to kind of go back and explore our hunter-gatherer past. When I say hunter-gatherer past, of course, there are still hunter-gatherers living today um, who might go about their daily lives doing something like this. Um, I don't know what they're doing. They might be just going for a quick morning jog. This is probably how our ancestors hunted. Quite an unusual way of doing so. And you'll notice they're not carrying any weapons, at least none that I can detect. Uh, obviously, they've got the dogs with them, so they might uh, help with that regard. Um, it's a very, very curious thing about human evolution. So we started off um, as apes in the trees, basically eating fruit, came down out of those trees, started roaming around the savannah, and then started adding meat to our diet. Even though we don't have big teeth, we don't have big claws. So the question was, how on earth were we able to do that when we don't really seem to have the equipment to be a predator? And it seems that the popular idea is that what we did was basically run our prey to death. Um, so what we would do is basically keep pursuing um, our prey. So be oh, an antelope, no, oh, no, Ellen, whatever. Uh, just keep running after them um, for hours and hours and hours until eventually they will just drop dead from heat stroke and exhaustion. Of course, the trick with this is to not drop dead from heat stroke and exhaustion <laughs> yourself. Um, there we have a few interesting benefits. Being upright helps with that. Um, it means that we're more exposed to the wind, so we tend to kind of cool down faster. We're not exposed to so much heat energy from the sun, so we can kind of keep it a little bit cooler that way. Um, this is also, it seems, probably why we're mostly hairless, why we're very sweaty. We are very sweaty animals, humans. Uh, not many mammals sweat to the extent that we do. Um, yes, yeah, so we've just basically got very good coolant systems, um, which means that we're able to do this and kind of, you know, paradoxically able to kind of run our prey to exhaustion. Because, of course, in a flat-out sprint, that antelope is going to win easily. It's only because we're able to kind of keep the pressure on, to kind of keep up that chase for hours and hours that we're able to kind of beat them like this. But if you're going to do this, if you're going to go for a, a fairly high-intensity run for hours and hours, then you're going to need to have some kind of psychological mechanism to get you to continue to do that. Because that's going to put your body under a fair amount of stress. And this could be 
how the runner's high actually came about. It's, you can almost think of it like a kind of an, an alarm override system. Because no, normally when you're kind of you know, putting your body under that sort of pressure, um, various physiological mechanisms might kick in to stop you doing it. You'll start to feel exhausted, think, no, gosh, I need to stop now. Um, the runner's high will kind of keep you going through that. Because in this particular case, when you're hunting like this, this is how you're going to get your food, so it's necessary. Um, so this may be the context in which the runner's high evolved. And it's interesting that, uh, so not all activities elicit the runner's high by any means. It really does seem to be specifically about endurance running. And it's not seen in all species of organisms. So interestingly, it's seen in dogs. Um, interesting because if you look at wolves, they also hunt in this way. I don't know if you've ever seen footage of wolves hunting the caribou across Canada or something. Again, they will keep up with the pack, uh, with the herd, um, well, for even longer than, than, than we would. So no, days and days and days, they're kind of chasing uh, these, these caribou. Um, so you'd imagine, assuming that they're conscious, assuming that they're capable of feeling that sort of thing, that they might have this experience as well. And this is an experiment which showed that, you know, certainly look at the, looking at the, the concentration of endocannabinoids, it does seem to be the case. So if you're looking at the top one there, I think this is the last graph I had, by the way. Uh, the top one is just looking, I think this is just on a treadmill, by the way, um, looking at the levels of endocannabinoids in the blood before and after running. And as you can see, with both humans and dogs, uh, the levels shoot up um, after a run. And that's going to, that's largely, we think, going to be correlated with the sensations of the run as well. Um, before and after walking, that doesn't happen at all. Um, it really is very specifically after the running. Interestingly, if you look at ferrets, they don't have the same response at all. Uh, so the ferrets do not seem to have this sensation of the runner's heart. Um, and they did put a ferret on a, on a treadmill. There's a ferret, here's a ferret on a treadmill. <laughs> Got to see it, haven't you? Um, yeah, so it seems that... Um, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, ferrets are descended from polecats. Uh, polecats are more burst hunters. So they all kind of know harry things, they just chase things down their burrows. So they don't indulge in this persistence hunting technique. So by that token and by the kind of argument I just presented, you therefore wouldn't expect them to have this runner's high. They don't need to have that alarm override system uh, because it's just not in their biology uh, to have to have a harry prey for kind of hours and hours and hours. <laughs> there we go. Um, sprinting also doesn't elicit that sensation, although he does look pretty happy there. Um, <laughs> That's because it would be too dangerous. When you go for a sprint, then you really do put your body under very intense stress. Um, you're running, uh, and you're basically running your muscles without using any oxygen. So you're running them under anaerobic metabolism, as we say, to generating a lot of lactic acid. Um, if that was allowed to build up, then we'd be in really serious trouble. Um, so no, you're not going to get the runners high uh, going for a sprint. That's not to say it won't be uh, an inspirational or enjoyable experience, um, but it will feel pretty tough, uh, and it's supposed to because that's, that's pushing the body into slightly dangerous territory. And here I think we have a possible explanation for the exercise paradox. Um, but if you're not particularly fit, then if you go for an endurance run, you will start to use your muscles anaerobically, you will start to build up lactic acid. Um, and therefore, it's just going to feel pretty unpleasant. It's going to feel unpleasant because, you know, you're on the edge of what you're actually going to be able to do. It's only if you're really pretty fit, so, so I salute you, 
who have managed to kind of feel this sensation. You have to be fit uh, for it to be safe for the body to kind of allow yourself to experience the runner's high. So that sounds perhaps a little bit depressing, even though we can now account for the exercise paradox, um, that if you're not super fit, you're just not going to be experiencing much locomotory joy. Oh dear. But I'm just going to get back to the ferrets. So the ferrets don't have the runner's high, but they're hardly lacking in locomotory drive. Um, so here's a couple of ferrets just mucking about. I imagine having a whale of a time. They won't be experiencing the runner's high during any of this. But, that's, but I don't think that means they're not going to be experiencing any kind of joy or pleasure at all. Now, remember when I said that when we're thinking about the runner's high, you know, one of the key um, aspects of that sensation is the release of the neurotransmitter dopamine. Now, dopamine, as I said, it's often characterized as the brain's reward chemical. Um, has a long, long history of research, and one of the very first experiments to try to sort of uncover what is going on with dopamine was carried out in the 1950s. So this is a rat, you, yes, you can see it's got that kind of um, wire attached to it. Basically, it's got an electrode embedded in its brain, um, quite deep within its brain, and um, that electrode will give a slight stimulation whenever that rat pushes the lever. Um, and the experimenters that, just did, that, that kind of carried out this uh, found out that when the electrode was in the right place, then the rats would just go mad for that lever. Um, they would carry on pressing it over and over and over again, basically self-stimulating, um, ignoring all other activities. They wouldn't eat anything, they wouldn't drink, um, you know, they wouldn't mate, uh, just to kind of keep pressing, uh, pushing that lever. Uh, perhaps even more extraordinarily, what you're going to see now is an experiment set up so that... Um, the ability of the rat to kind of elicit the sensation <coughs> for, the, for the lever to work, basically, switches from one end of that track to the other. Um, that's an electrified track. So in order to kind of get from one end to the other, it has to do that. So it has to run over <laughs> this electric fence, basically. Um, and it will do so. It is that motivated to kind of push that lever and give itself that buzz. Um, extraordinary, extraordinary kind of... Um, ability to kind of deal with that pain. So, no, that must be a highly, highly motivating thing to do. Now, it turns out, obviously this is a human brain, not a, no, not a rat brain, um, but the electrode, I don't have anything to point to, so it doesn't matter, um, it points to that sort of area there. So it's an area called um, the septum, and it's since been found out um, that various uh, nerve cells that release dopamine project onto this area. This is kind of, you know, this, it gave us this idea um, that uh, this particular sensation, the pleasure that the, the rats seem to be getting when they push this lever, was associated with uh, a release of dopamine. That was kind of the beginning um, of these sorts of experiments, to try to kind of understand uh, what dopamine uh, was all about. And in that sense, it did seem to be something basically like um, a brain, the, the brain's simple pleasure chemical. But it seems actually that um, it's a little bit more complicated than that, as you probably would imagine. Um, so there's been a lot more sophisticated experiments done uh, on dopamine since then, using all sorts of techniques. Um, we now know of various dopamine inhibitors, so we can now block dopamine function uh, in the brain. Uh, we can uh, supply them with various things which will kind of 
give them the same sensation as dopamine, basically kind of give them illicit drugs, which is no. Basically, I should say, by the way, that a lot of our illegal drugs do activate the, the very similar circuits. Um, they often mimic the action of dopamine in various ways. Um, you can genetically engineer mice um, to, you know, for instance, there's a bunch of mice where they lack a dopamine transporter. Um, that basically stops dopamine being reabsorbed after it's been released. So it kind of just hangs around and continues to kind of give you the same sensation. That precisely mimics the action of cocaine. That's exactly what cocaine does. So yes, you would basically genetically engineer permanently coked up mice. Um, and thanks to all these various different um, experiments, we're now beginning to understand the nuances of what dopamine is all about. Um, just to kind of give you an example, um, one of the things you can do, um, it's a kind of standard psychological technique, is to present a rat with a tea maze, uh, such as a kind of little corridor, and then um, a kind of option to go left or right. Very simple thing, sort of thing. Um, and the experiment I'm about to describe, they have two different sorts of food at either end of this tea maze. So some fairly uh, shoddy lab chow at one end, and some rather more desirable, high-quality, gourmet food at the other end. Um, and if, it was a, if you put any rat in this, obviously it's going to kind of go for the gourmet food. That's, no, that's a rather simple, very expected thing to happen. Um, but interesting things have, start to happen if you start to muck about uh, with, their, with the rat's dopamine function. So, for instance, if you give it a dopamine inhibitor, well, if you just do that, then the same thing will happen. Rat will still go uh, to the to the high quality food, but something will happen if you then make it just a little bit more difficult for that rat to get the food. If you put a kind of low barrier, something it could easily scale um, between it and the high, and the high quality food, and if its dopamine function has been compromised, then it won't go there anymore. It will go for the uh, for the shoddier, uh, poorer quality food down the other path. An idea about what dopamine might actually be doing. It's, it seems to have some kind of motivational aspect to it. It's the sort of it, it's what enables an animal to want to work in order to get some sort of reward. And we've built up more and more over the years. So it's not just a case of simply getting some tangible reward, but even just kind of getting a potential reward. Uh, what I mean here is going out and exploring your environment, trying to kind of find out more about your environment. Dopamine does seem to stimulate that sort of activity. It stimulates exploration. Because, of course, by exploring, you're going to find out things that might be to your advantage. You might find out more about yourself. You might, to go back to locomotion, um, find out how to move better. All of these things do seem to be kind of in the sphere of what dopamine is all about. Uh, and specifically, it seems to kind of act as a sort of, uh, almost a kind of fuel gauge. That, now, if we've got enough fuel on board... Um, then it's going to stimulate us to kind of go out and explore our environment, find out more about it. Um, and we presume we'll act to reward uh, that process, to reward the act of exploration. So, yes, yeah, slightly different. So it's not just simply looking at this as some kick, as some uh, burst of pleasure um, you know, whenever you do anything that might be kind of remotely rewarding. This is a very specific um, function that this dopamine has in order to kind of get, a, get us out and exploring our environment. And by, with this in mind, we can st perhaps start to explore some other forms of motion that might still be uh, enjoyable for us. So something like this, for instance. 
utterly terrifying. I won't let it run all the way to the end because I'm not sure we can kind of take it. Um, this rich run on a mountain bike. Um, obviously, all the time this person is doing this, um, he has to be exquisitely aware of the environment um, because the slightest uh, mistake is oh, going um, to end him at the bottom of that mountain. Um, now, that's the sort of thing that you'd imagine dopamine being really good for. It's that heightened awareness of what's going on in your environment. It's that you know, openness um, to what's going on. Of course, here, it's a life or death thing. They need to be kind of exquisitely aware. When I talk about this, you might start thinking, if you've ever looked into any of this, you might be thinking of the flow state. I don't know if this is a, a, a phrase that is familiar to you. There you go. He's not finished. Um, enough, enough, enough. Um, yeah, so the flow state is, um, is a kind of paradoxical combination of calm and excitement that you get when you're completely absorbed in an activity, uh, when you need to be completely turned on uh, as to what's kind of going on around you. And that's exactly the sort of thing that one would imagine uh, dopamine circuitry to be involved in. Now, it's very difficult to prove this um, because, of course, to understand uh, no, exactly which, which, no, the, which parts of the brain are secreting dopamine, you have to really go inside an MRI scanner, a brain scanner. They're not the most portable of things, so you can't really wear one um, while you're going for one of these bike rides. But I would be very surprised if this did not happen while they're going for that sort of uh, activity. Uh, that kind of need for awareness. Um, now, of course, not all of us can do this. <laughs> um, um, I certainly wouldn't do anything. You wouldn't catch me doing anything like this. So that way of experiencing locomotory joy, I think, is going to be closed off to most of us. But then there is a more sedate way of doing the same thing again. Um, so this uh, is a member of the Batik tribe in uh, Malaysia. Um, it's just a, no, another example of a, uh, a hunter-gatherer uh, that lives today. Um, basically doing what hunter-gatherers will spend most of their day doing, which is what's often called wayfaring. Um, this is basically exploring their environment. Uh, navigating in their environment, no, they won't have any kind of pre-drawn maps or anything, but navigating in their environment solely based on what they're gathering uh, from their senses as they're moving around. Uh, again, this is the sort of thing where I'd imagine that the dopamine circuitry would be heavily involved in um, because they need to be open to possible violations of expectation, possible surprises. So they don't necessarily know exactly what they're going to encounter in the environment. So you need to kind of keep open, keep aware uh, as you kind of move through. Now, of course, they're doing this to, mainly to forage. Um, they need to know where to find the right plants, all of this sort of stuff. Um, as again, as I say, I, the, we can't know what they do. We can't sort of put them in scanners while they're doing this to actually kind of know what's going on in their brain. But it's probably significant to know that you know, when anthropologists um, uh, analyse these people, um, they always report on how important this activity is for these people, um, how much meaning uh, they draw from this apparently simple act of walking in their environment and exploring it. Um, it's basically how they discover their world. It's how they uh, discover how they might relate to their world. Um, all their knowledge is built up from this activity. It's how they connect to their ancestors. Um, I mean, there's a fantastic story from one of these, um, uh, one of these studies 
where it says that when these people feel some kind of yearning, some kind of longing for their ancestors, uh, then they will seek out the pathways that they trod just so they can kind of walk them again. And it almost seems a bit trite to say that that's going to kind of connect them to their ancestors because in a sense, that's going to allow them to almost be their ancestors. Now, they will be experiencing the same thing uh, as they wander through the woods, as they kind of keep alert to the various things that they are uh, they're kind of exploring. I mean, what a fantastic way to kind of, kind of connect uh, with your culture. Um, and it's a kind of almost a sort of sad thing that you know, we don't seem to be able to do this anymore. This is something that seems to be largely kind of buried in our hunter-gatherer past. Or is it? I do wonder whether there are certain activities which might still kind of build on this idea of that violation of expectation, the kind of the dopamine buzz that might occur as we explore, as we discover something perhaps a little bit surprising in our environment. Heading into quite speculative territory now, I should say, but I do wonder whether our love of stories may be related to this. Um, it's quite a famous twist. from a fa- I hope you all know you all know this. I don't want to be spoiling this for anyone. Um, but yes, yeah, so um, this idea of being able to kind of... You know, when, when we're kind of navigating the environment, or when you're wayfaring in the environment, when you're able to kind of pick your way through the environment, what you're going to be doing is drawing some kind of um, uh, deeper meaning um, from a kind of a sequence of vistas. I think that's kind of what happens when we tell a story or when we hear a story. We have a series of events and we're getting deeper meaning from it by linking them together in a certain way. And often what's, uh, what we kind of look forward to most is the violations of expectation, that kind of unexpected twist, like Darth Vader being uh, Luke Skywalker's father. Sorry if that was a spoiler. Um, uh, at the end of The Empire Strikes Back. I don't know, it's just a thought. Now... One of the, um, um, another kind of possible expression of this, where I think there is actually a bit more scientific support, um, is in music. So music is obviously a, a powerful way in which we, kind of, we can kind of engage with our emotions. And I uh, hope you know, most of you will probably have experienced the notion of the chill. Do you know what I'm talking about when I talk about the chill when you're listening to music? This sort of shiver up your spine when some sort of musical phrase uh, might occur. Um, one of the theories about why we might experience this is that, again, it might be a violation of expectation. It's something surprising. Maybe it's a, some kind of crescendo, a change of key. Something has, has happened that's a little bit unexpected. And that might be what kind of gives us this buzz. Um, and there's some very good evidence that when that happens, there is a burst of dopamine in the brain. Because, of course, when you're listening to music, you can do that in an MRI scanner. So this has been done. People have been kind of put in scanners while they're listening to their favourite music and to see what might happen uh, when certain things happen, certain musical events might happen. And of course, we're asking them at the same time to kind of self-report whether they're feeling the chill or not. Um, I'm just going to play you one of the things which kind of elicits this sensation in me, um, mainly for my own benefit, really. I don't think, unless you know this piece of music, you might not get the same thing. This is from Poulenc's Mass in G. Uh, it's the very end of the Agnes Day, and it's, oh my goodness. Just... Oh, man. <laughs> um, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, uh, now, obviously, um, 
one of the kind of the catches of a violation of expectation is you kind of need to have an expectation to begin with. So you sort of need to have some kind of baseline um, kind of knowledge of what this bit of music sounded like before you can kind of get that thrill. Um, which is also why, by the way, you can kind of go off music, I think. Um, but you'll stop feeling the chills when you know it too well because then you're not violating your expectations. So it's a bit of a sweet spot. You need to know it just well enough, but not so well that you kind of know exactly what's coming. Anyway, just to kind of give you the results of one of the experiments that was done on this kind of musical, um, this musical thing, um, that's a cross-section through someone's brain, obviously not from a computer cross-section, uh, from an MRI scanner. Uh, actually, it might be a PET scanner, sorry, not an MRI scanner. Um, that little light that you see there, it's very close to the area of the brain that the rats were self-stimulating by pressing that lever. It's not quite exactly the same place, but very nearly. And the intensity of... So what this is basically measuring is, um, is really blood flow, uh, which is the, the, the proxy for the activity of this region of the brain. Uh, we know this region of the brain um, releases dopamine, and so it seems that the intensity of the, of the chills, as reported by these people, uh, and the reported pleasure, do correlate really quite strongly with the activity of these dopamine centers in the brain. So I think this is really quite nice evidence that no, this is what dopamine feels like <laughs> when you kind of go for those chills. So I think we do still have this ability to feel this, even if you don't do the runner's high, uh, even, if we can't, if we, even if we can't wayfare. But just to kind of finish off, I'd like to kind of explore why we don't wayfare anymore, why we don't explore the environment in the same way that our hunter-gatherer ancestors did. Um, because it is a bit of a shame, and I'd like to think that there is actually still a way that we can reconnect with this. Um, now, one of the reasons has got to be the transition to agriculture. Um, you know, if, you're not, if you don't need to kind of go out and explore your environment in order to find food, clearly there's going to be less incentive to do so. Um, there's not a lot we can do that. We're not simply going to be able to go back to being hunter-gatherers um, because um, the earth would simply not support us um, if we had that mode of life. Um, perhaps one thing that we can do something about, however, is the rise of our locomotory technology, uh, which I think has had a more kind of insidious effect on stopping us from exploring the environment in the same way that our hunter-gatherer ancestors did. Um, this is apparently a 10,000-year-old cave painting. It's probably one of the earliest depictions of someone on horseback. Because, of course, the interesting thing is that we can actually move pretty well. But there are always going to be some organisms that can do it better than us. And the key thing about horses, the horses obviously can go faster than us, and we can domesticate them. So we can kind of augment our own locomotory powers by letting the horse kind of carry us. And of course, from that point on, um, the locomotory technology started to develop. First of all, of adding weapons uh, to the proceedings, adding wheels to the proceedings... Um, adding roads uh, so that um, the, the wheels can kind of move with optimum efficiency. And eventually putting an internal combustion engine on it. <laughs> um, and lots and lots of people. Um, so that we can now travel vast distances without having to do anything. Um, and remember what I said earlier about the way we learn to move. Now we all kind of end up adopting the same solution because it is very, very efficient. Oh, we can't get really any more efficient than that. No, we're not having to do anything at all. And we're able to travel these vast distances. But the trouble is, by doing so, we're not exploring the environment anymore. Um, basically, 
we don't really need to be conscious at all why we're in the kind of while we're sort of in transit and it really kind of distorts the way we relate to our environment remember when i said that the these hunter gatherers when they're navigating the environment when they're wayfaring when they're open to what's going on around them this is how they relate to their environment when we do this sort of thing we stop ourselves from doing this so rather than kind of learning about the places where we live we end up turning it into something like this where there are lots of little isolated nodes uh, connected by the routes down which we travel. It's a very disconnected, much more sort of top-down uh, way of relating to our world. Um, and of course, the ultimate expression of this comes with the motor car. Um, now, I make no... Uh, I, I'm an unapologetic in my hatred of these things. Um, these ghastly, belching, four-wheeled monstrosities. Um, you might wonder why I have such kind of hatred for these rather than, say, trains. The thing about trains is that their reach is rather limited. Uh, the problem with cars is that they sort of spread throughout our entire um, world. They kind of they dominate our entire existence. Um, and they do it by rather pernicious means. Because you could say, well, there's nothing really stopping you from wayfaring while in a car. Um, and obviously the adverts for SUVs uh, do very much kind of make that point. Yes, you can, you can go off-road, you can explore your environment in this fantastic car. And yet it can be done, but only in very few environments. And of course, most often, uh, the experience is going to be more likely something like this. Um, and the trouble is that once we kind of start to kind of get locked into this, um, it's very difficult to kind of shake the habit. Now, the more we're kind of used to the vast distances we're able to kind of traverse relatively quickly. We start living further away from each other. We start living further away from where we work. And we're then locked. Um, there's no, it's almost like a kind of societal addiction that we kind of can't kick. Um, and I don't mean to blame anyone, by the way. I am very lucky in being able to kind of live in a place like Cambridge where I don't need to be able to do this. And this is the thing, that our settlements are increasingly being designed expressly for the car and not for the person. Um, and I know I'm running out of time, so I will kind of uh, stop the rant quite quickly. Um, just to kind of say that there is, I think, a little bit of hope on the horizon for this. Um, partly in just simple awareness raising stunts like this, where you know, we can start to kind of see just how much, it, uh, the enormous amounts of space uh, that, um, uh, that cars can use up. And of course, also things like this. Now, there are certain cities... We know where there is now a much greater awareness uh, as to the damage that um, that cars are causing. They're not obviously partly to our health through um, air pollution, obviously through accidents. You know, they're, they're very dangerous things, uh, but also to our psychology. Uh, I know Helsinki is planning to go car, car free. Um, the Netherlands, uh, Denmark, I know they are notable uh, for trying to kind of move away from the the four wheeled hegemony. Uh, but just to kind of finish off. Um, because I don't think, no, these, these sorts of experiments, I think, are generally going to be quite a, a, a way off. But there is a way, I think, that all of us can perhaps try to kind of recapture some of this joy of um, unplanned locomotion in cities, which is basically just by getting lost. Um, I was very lucky last year to take part in something called a, a Hidden Cities event. don't know if any of you have heard of these. They're basically like treasure hunts for adults. Um, it was a fantastic thing. It started off... Uh, in the National Portrait Gallery. Um, and it was all done via text message. So we kind of solve a clue, and that would take us to a new place, and we get a text message, and, and so on and so forth. But in order to kind of do this, of course, we had to be aware of the world around us. We had to open our, eye, well, open our eyes and our ears 
um, to actually kind of look at the places, really see the places that we were kind of moving through. And it was extraordinary how that transformed the simple act of moving in a place. Normally, we're in, well, just, you know, we have our map, we know where we need to go, and it's just such a rush, you know, we need to go from here to here, and we just kind of ignore everything that's kind of going on around us. Now, I produced that map um, entirely from memory um, after the event, um, because it had been so impressed on me. Uh, I remember every single one of those way stations, because now I remember the kind of the, what we had to find, what we were discovering at every point along that way. And it was a completely electrifying experience. Um, so I would strongly recommend, um, at some point in your lives, uh, well, do try to go for Hidden City's thing, but really, if you just kind of discard time limits and maps and the like, just try and get lost in a city. Just try and you know, wander through your world. Just open your eyes. Just try to kind of rediscover something about the hunter-gatherer in all of us, because I do believe that the hunter-gatherer is still there in all of us. And hopefully, there is some hope for us all in rediscovering some locomotory joy. So that's all I've got to say. Um, if you're interested in any of this stuff um, and want to know more, uh, that's my book, Restless Creatures, The Story of Life in Ten Movements, uh, available at all good bookshops. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> Thanks. So I guess we've got time for some questions. So did I see your hand shoot up? <laughs> it's, it's not really a fair question for you, but I think you probably know the answer. Uh -huh. Yes. And you get it roughly there. Why does it have any kind of predictable effect rather than just kind of causing mayhem? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm not, not really going to be able to answer this question very well. Suffice to say that there is an organisation to the brain. Um, you know, we do have these set nuclei which do seem to have quite, um, quite conservative functions. Like, for instance... You know, Broca's speech area. Um, uh, there's the, the primary motor cortex. Um, and basically, yeah, the early experiments probably were rather crude. Um, but we're getting better and better at it. I mean, there's some really sophisticated stuff happening now. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the, the um, technique of optogenetics. So this is where we basically use a virus to introduce a protein in certain cells of the brain, which is basically a light-receptive channel. Uh, light receptive ion channel, which will effectively turn those cells on when they're exposed to a certain wavelength of light. So now we can attach the kind of optic fibres to the brain and then turn on very, very specific parts of the brain. And, you know, I almost kind of put a video in here, actually, because uh, there's one of um, a mouse where this has been done to the primary motor cortex. Uh, and you can see when the light goes on, and it's just kind of wandering around quite happily. When the light goes on, it just starts running around and around and around. So you almost kind of like, you're able to kind of remote control this thing. Um, so yes, we're getting much better at, at understanding exactly what the various different bits and pieces of the brain do. We are a long way off, of course. It's a very complex object. So yes, thank you. Um, yeah. Interested in your concentration on the individual. Oh yes. Although you've, you've, you've mentioned in passing mm -hmm. this, this, the sociology of mm -hmm. Dan Animal up in <laughs> components, but it's 
Hmm. I'd imagine a sort of sociology involving you know, fast twitch twitches, yeah. so to speak, yeah, yeah, yeah. endurance. A anything in that which would be possibly related? Yes, I mean, I'd, um, quite possibly. I mean, I think it's a really interesting idea, um, and one that I had not really considered, actually. Um, I mean, clearly it is, you know, because obviously you can change this by training. I think there are certain, one has a certain propensity to be you know, one kind or another. Um, but yes, depending on how you train, you can end up with more of the, the twitch muscles or more of the kind of endurance muscles. Um, yes, I can imagine that, I mean, I, I think it, I mean, obviously, I mean, the, the, uh, in terms of the runner's high, that's going to be the more long distance stuff. Um, but that's not to say that, that going for a sprint, no, it, it all depends on what the kind of objective is, I guess. There's no reason why that shouldn't you know, involve dopamine as well. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm just trying to think now. No, how it kind of you know, societally, you know, would there be some need to have your fast runners for certain purposes and, or, and your endurance runners? Sorry. Um, yeah, really interesting question. I need to go and think about that. I think. Yes. 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 Of course. So yes. Yeah, and again, some very interesting stuff done on the, sociology, uh, the, 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 the social dimension of music. Yeah, actually, a friend of mine um, was working on um, Indian music, so sitar music and tabla, and about how that communication works between the two. Um, and, yeah, really sort of interesting work. Yeah, thanks. Oh, yes. That's a really interesting question. I don't know the answer. Um, I would not be surprised if that was the case. Um, I'm really only able to kind of speak from personal experience here. Where I mean, I'm thinking particularly of things like IMAX films, uh, these very immersive 3D films where you almost feel like you're moving. Um, <clears throat> and I'm sure I would be very surprised if, if dopamine wasn't involved there in some way. But yes, so I'm sorry I don't <laughs> I don't know whether it has been done, but yes, I would think it probably has. Yeah, worth looking at. Yeah, it's a difficult one, this. It is difficult. I mean, I, I, I don't want to kind of speak from ignorance, <laughs> really. Um, I mean, yes, obviously, there is a notion that you are cutting yourself off uh, from the world and the richness of the possibilities out there by doing this. Um, having said that, um, and it, this doesn't seem to be kind of happening anymore, but it, I'm sure you'll remember the Pokemon Go phenomenon. 
was that last year or the year before? Um, and that really got me thinking, actually, because there, okay, yes, it was all done via the phone, but at least it was getting you to relate to the actual environment, to the real environment. And actually, it was, it was making the, 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 the kind of common world uh, an exciting place. And I, I did wonder whether there was, some, there was something that could be harnessed there, um, a kind of a way of actually increasing engagement rather than kind of decreasing it. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's all I, I'm prepared to say on this. Um, but yes, my gut feeling is that, yes, you want to be kind of experiencing the world as it's happening. That's, that's sort of what we're programmed to do, if I can put it in those terms. Yes, yeah, so I, I do agree with you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Um, I love it when I see schools that kind of know, have the courage to just get people out into the outdoors. Um, I, I'm a massive fan of forest schools. Um, I, I have, don't, know, don't know if you're familiar with these. These are just basically um, barely supervised, um, actually. I mean, obviously, safely supervised. Um, but just for kind of sessions where you go into the woods and just let the kids do, do what they want. They'll you know, climb trees and find out stuff. And it's... I, it is such a core part of, I think, of how we, we discover the world. So I think it's, it's such a misstep to try and get kids to sit still all the time, as most of you are sitting still now, actually. <laughs> oh, the irony. Um, but yes, no, I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, thank you for being here today. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Um, I mean, there's a lot of research about how obesity is related to the dopamine circuits because I mean on one hand I mean this is one of the one of the challenges to the kind of traditional view of dopamine as simply a pleasure chemical that you kind of expect it to be perhaps you'd expect obese people to have very high dopamine function because you know they're getting sort of extra pleasure from all the food they're eating and it, the opposite turned out to be the case um, and yes it does seem to be in a kind of overall lack of motivation so um, I'm sure this is being explored as a possible therapy um, I, I don't know again um, what steps are actually being taken here. Need to be careful. Um, these dopamine circuits are complicated things. I mean, this is one of the problems with, um, with illegal drugs is that they often kind of activate certain aspects of the system but not others. And it can lead you into kind of very troublesome places, obviously. Um, but yeah, there's, I think there's, there's certainly something worth exploring there. Yeah, thanks. Oh, one again. Yep. Yes, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one bit of information I know about this, there was a, a, a competition, it's probably still running yearly or something, but it's something called RoboCup. Um, and yeah, it's basically, it's, everyone uses the same uh, make of robot. These are the NAO robots, that's N-A-O robots, um, which are one of the more sophisticated <laughs> on the market at the moment. And I think the idea is basically they're just kind of, each team will have their, their bunch of robots and they will play each other at football. Um, and I think most of them were sort of very sort of heavily programmed. Um, there was one team, and I can't remember which team it was now, where they decided, well, let's, let's try to kind of get them to learn themselves. Um, and they just wiped the floor <laughs> with the opposite. They, they, they won every match. 
Um, so that's the kind of the, the only experience I have with that is that kind of letting these machines kind of learn about their own. I mean, obviously, there's no, well, you know, assume, presume there's no consciousness there, but letting them kind of learn how they work rather than kind of programming every single one within an inch of its life um, did seem to have an enormous benefit there. So I think, yeah, that's. The crow was conscious. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. Um, I don't know what the, the precise consensus is at the moment about animal consciousness, but it's certainly, we th the, the general theory is it, it goes beyond the great apes now. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a, I mean, that's just a gut feeling. There's no real scientific basis of this because we don't really have any metric for consciousness. That's the trouble, because no, it, it is an entirely subjective experience. So we can try, I mean, I know I've read some, in, some things about no possible linkage of, if you dream, maybe, or if you show outward signs of dreaming, maybe that means you're conscious. Of course, there are lots of animals that kind of show outward signs of dreaming, but um, yes, we are at sea. Some very interesting ideas that, you know, push it way, way back. So, you know, very kind of earlier sort of flatwormy-like animals might have been conscious. Um, and that's based on possibilities of maybe bees might be conscious. It's, it's all sorts of very interesting ideas. But at the moment, it's just pie in the sky, really. There's no way you can test any of this stuff. It's but just... I think a crow is conscious, yes. <laughs> yes? Uh, oh, sorry, yes, yeah, 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 I just noticed the time, yeah. Time, so anyone who does need to leave now, very welcome to, but um, might be able to round circle while longer for any more questions. Yeah, sure. Okay, <laughs> sorry, sorry, what was your question? Okay, um, so it's currently something that's doing mental health, it's smaller Mm-hmm. I'm sure it will, but I think it will depend very much on how you do it. Um, so I think just going for a walk on a treadmill is not going to give you anything like the benefits of, say, wandering around a park. And I think it's this, it's this notion of the sort of the sensory embodiment side of things. Um, it's, it, because dopamine is all about the exploration, um, that seems to be its ancestral role. So I think if you can tap into that, um, then, yes, I'm sure there are all sorts of mental health benefits that could be... Reach. I, I, so I don't think it's purely. I mean, the exercise itself does an enormous, enormous amount of good, but it's 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 getting the exploration into that as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's, obviously it's better than nothing, but it's. I think it's far better to, to kind of get out and about. And it's, it's particularly where it's, it seems to be a complex environment. So it's often been found that the the, the kind of the, the, the psychological benefits of walking in a natural environment do seem to be higher than in a, in an urban environment. And it's been suggested that that might be just because it is a more complex environment, so there is more violation of expectation, there's more you know, unexpected turns you might be able to take. Um, obviously, there's also the added possible stress of having traffic all around and the noise and all of that stuff. So it's not a, a particularly easy um, stuff to dissect. Um, but yeah, I think there are certainly lots of, lots of options there. Yeah, yes? Again, I don't know. It'd be a really good idea. I, 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 yeah, I, I'm sure. That, yeah, I think I. I'm sure someone must have done it. Yeah, and I, I, I seem to remember having this thought myself at one point that this would be a really good idea. Um, I mean, I particularly think of um, you know, one of these adventure games um, because there, you, you, that very much is about exploring an environment. And I'm sure. I mean, just certainly kind of thinking of my experience of those sorts of games, I bet the dopamine circuits are lighting up like Christmas trees. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's often interesting to know, know how much the simulation of the experience will get you, you know, how far will that take you when you don't have any physical activity that kind of goes along with it. And I, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. It's notable that a lot of us could do the experience of her while watching the film. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I think it's, yeah, we are, I think our brains are quite easily fooled in that way. And of course, all the stuff about music shows that you, know, you really don't have to be moving to kind of experience the dopamine high. So, yeah, and I think that's a really interesting, interesting notion. Yeah. Round up there. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Thank you.